You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Discipline matters and punching back and being tough matters. And and this administration, you know, has the kind of people who understand how to do that. Paul Nakasone, Jen Easterly, Rob Joyce, uh, Chris Ingalls, these people know how to get tough with the adversary. We got to free them up to do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy, surveillance, law, and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben looks at legislation aiming to better protect youngsters online. I share an outline from the folks at Lawfare for more responsible, offensive cybersecurity. And later in the show, my conversation with Jamil Jaffer from IronNet Cybersecurity. We're going to be discussing some of the key takeaways from President Biden's executive order on cybersecurity. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we've got some good stories to share this week. Why don't you start things off for us? So my story comes from the Washington Post. New bill would update decades-old law governing children's privacy online and protection for teens. Hmm. It's about a piece of legislation that was introduced in the House of Representatives that would update the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA, which is a good acronym, uh, (laughs) with a a new piece of, of legislation. This bill would be entitled Protecting the Information of Our Vulnerable Children and Youth Act, not recognizing the uh, acronym here unless you make the PR uh, in privacy. protecting, yeah, then kids, it would they're be... They're calling it the Kids Privacy Act. Yeah. It's pretty good. It's a bit of a stretch because <laughs> you'd have to include the P and R in protecting. Start, start having a leaderboard on these uh, acronyms so we could have a rating system? There's got to be a job in the Congressional Research Service of the right. person who makes the acronyms. And right. Let's just say that's my dream job. There you go. Uh, and if anybody go. listening wants to hire me for that job, I'm, I'm certainly— uh, I mean, Just a quick aside, early on in my career, I did some contract work for the U.S. Postal Service. They had some video communication stuff, and there was a talk. I was talking to a guy who was just uh, enamored with one of his colleagues who was the, the most gifted person in the U.S. Postal Service when it came to drawing out zip codes. Ah, yes. <laughs> oh, this guy, boy, he can just—he can— Talk about guy, a specialized skill, he yeah. Draw, he can map out a zip code like nobody else. And I just think about, you know, one person, as you say, in, in Congress whose job it is to, to uh, you can throw anything at them and they can come up with a good acronym. At any rate, I digress. Yeah. Your story this week, Ben. We digress. <laughs> so 
This uh, new legislation would expand COPPA to include teenagers under 18. The current law only applies to people under the age of 13. Hmm. Uh, and the rules would also apply to every site that children and teens use. We have this problem now where uh, the rules intending to protect online privacy for children don't apply to sites where people under 13 are not allowed. Hmm. Um, that includes the major social media sites like Instagram and Facebook. Right. I don't know if you're aware, Dave, but let's just say those rules aren't exactly meticulously followed. <laughs> yes. There are a lot of people 12 and under uh, who do uh, go on Facebook and Instagram, aren't truthful in um, you know, filling out information when they're setting up an account. And the justification of this law is that uh, those individuals deserve the protection of the law uh, as well, especially if we're admitting that they're going to be on these websites. Okay. And the companies themselves admit that children younger than 13 uh, are using their services. Okay. Um, and they're simply just lying so that they can have, you know, fun Facebook and Instagram interactions. Right. Uh, so... The bill would direct the FTC uh, to set up a new division to focus on youth privacy and marketing uh, and would allow the agency to pursue punitive damages against some of these big companies uh, like the Googles of the world um, if they try to target advertising to young children and if they tried to collect data for the purposes of advertising on children uh, younger than 18 uh, in this bill. Hmm. I think the impetus of this bill is that the previous law is sort of outdated, and it's outdated because it doesn't recognize the reality that people younger than 13 are using these uh, social media sites, and it also doesn't recognize that, um, you know, people in the 13 to 18-year-old age range are still vulnerable. There still should be some level of protection uh, for their privacy. They are not as able as adults to make decisions about protecting their own information. Huh. Uh, so they deserve the protection of the law. Uh, and this bill is supported by uh, a bunch of advocacy organizations that uh, have the mission of protecting kids online. They talked about Fair Play, Center for Digital Democracy, Common Sense Media, uh, etc., I think the tech companies have seen that uh, the writing is on the wall for this. Um, you know, they've created special applications uh, for the use of children under the age of 13 mm. um, where they aren't collecting data and uh, they aren't, you know, developing targeted advertising. So, for example, Facebook Messenger Kids, YouTube Kids, um, both of which are items that my kids uh, or my oldest uh, kid unfortunately uses. Um <laughs> <laughs> but they are, are they are geared for kids, right? And um, they are set up in a way that you don't see the type of mass data collection that uh, they engage in for adults. Hmm. Um, it, you know, I think the reason we would need a law is that these policies don't go far enough. Um, you know, there was a hearing in Congress this past March uh, with a bunch of Silicon Valley executives where members of Congress. We're talking about these instances where child safety and privacy uh, had been violated. And, you know, they talked about recognizing the reality that kids uh, under 13 are on these social media sites and do merit uh, protection. Hmm. Uh, there's a similar bill that's been proposed in the Senate on a bipartisan basis by Senator Markey of Massachusetts and Cassidy of Louisiana. Um, that, that law would, would do something similar to uh, the law being proposed in the House. Uh, so I think that you are going to see a concentrated effort to try and change regulations to to better protect uh, young people in this country. Yeah, it's just interesting. I, I 
I guess my initial reaction to this, of course, uh, I'm all for limiting the amount of tracking that these big social media companies can use. I wonder how effective something like this will be because it seems like they always find a, a workaround or a way to to do it anyway. Um, but I also wonder, uh, as someone who has a teenager and has had another teenager who's now no longer a teenager, I, how, I don't know how much of a problem I have with somebody putting an ad for sneakers in front of my 16-year-old. I guess it's the hyper-targeting that we're, that we're taking issue with here and then the, the collection of data about them to be able to pl- place those ads? Yeah, I, I think that's a large part of it. And the fact that, you know, you can't really uh, get meaning— you can get meaningful consent from adults, at mm-hmm. least theoretically, right. uh, to have this information collected, and you can't really get that from uh, people who are minors uh, just because they're not as capable of making an informed decision. And, you know— most of the decisions we have to make to protect our personal privacy are opt-out decisions, uh, meaning you actually have to actively go into an application and say, you know, don't track my uh, interactions, don't collect my data for advertising purposes. And people who are underage are just less able to make those those kinds of decisions. But I, I mean, I re- agree with you on principle that, like, is it that much of a concern that there's targeted advertising Targeted advertisements to, you know, people aged 13 through 18. It's not the biggest problem in the world to me, um, but I can understand why you would want to expand the protection of this previous legislation. You know, I think you're recognizing that people who are 16 and 17 are are still largely kids. Right. We recognize that in, in areas uh, of the law. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're doing more than just changing the age range here. Uh, you know, you are setting up a division of the FTC to actively engage in an effort to root out the exploitation of youth uh, in a bunch of different circumstances. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's more than just a, a technical change to the age limit. It's also a broader policy to try and root out privacy violations. And I suppose, I mean, this also relies on the teenagers themselves being honest when they create their <laughs> yeah. when they create their accounts and i have you know i mean teenagers any, are well known for being honest right yeah. well i'm just thinking of you know the the young teenage boy or girl who finds themselves at the entrance to some sort of porn site that says are you 18 and they're just like yes yes i am yes i am totally 18 let, yep. let me and and that's all it takes right so I, I suppose, you know, without any sort of age verification, which the social media companies have resisted strongly. Right. Um, and understandably, I mean, yeah, they want it, as many people as possible. Yeah. I mean, it's a burden, but um, yeah, I, I guess uh, I can understand the impulse of a teenager to want to act older than they are, right? I think yes. we've all been there. And mm-hmm. so uh, if there's no penalty for being found out about lying about your age on Facebook or Instagram or wherever, I mean, they're going to do that. Right. Right. I agree with you. I'll also point out, I unfortunately have watched a good deal of YouTube kids. Mm -hmm. The algorithm itself almost replaces the need for tracked advertising. Really? Uh, And, you know, maybe this is getting a little personal, but like, you start on cartoons, the algorithm will lead you to unboxing videos. Uh, uh. That means kids discover new toys that they <laughs> right. want to buy. Right, right. Um, so right. let's just say things have their way. The system is set up in a way that, um, you know, 
your kids' interests will be enhanced and developed by the algorithms in place. That's yeah. my personal opinion. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not alleging that you know YouTube Kids is doing that for any nefarious reason. Right. It's just an right. observation. Well, look. I mean, my generation grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons that were basically ads for sugary cereals and action figures. So. And we turned out just fine. Yeah. Did you, though? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, we really didn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, interesting story for sure. We'll have a, a link to that in the show notes. Um, my story this week comes from the Lawfare blog, uh, the folks over at Lawfare. This is uh, titled Responsible Cyber Offense, and it's uh, written by Perry Adams, Dave Itell, George Perkovich, and J.D. Work. Um, and really what uh, these folks are doing here is, is attempting to outline, I suppose, some rules of the road when it comes to offensive cyber operations, um, defining what that is uh, and uh, how you should go about that. Um, I think most of us, when we think of offensive cyber, cyber operations, we think of nation states engaging in them, and it's sort of the, the military analog in the cyber domain right. where you're actually reaching out and you're doing damage. You're, you're, you're not just – this isn't just espionage. This isn't secretly breaking into someone's system to gather information, to listen in, to find out what they're doing. This is reaching out, uh, making your way into a system, and then trying to hurt it, to erase data or corrupt data or so on and so forth. Obviously, this is problematic uh, if, for example, a private company starts to do this sort of thing, and uh, it is currently prohibited that private companies do this sort of thing yep. for, I think, uh, the, the reasons are obvious. Um, in the same way that, uh, you know, if uh, my neighbor comes and, uh, I don't know, you know, steals my favorite lawn ornament off my lawn— I can't go over and burn down his house, right? As much as you'd want to, no. The, <laughs> right, the law right. does, not, does not allow for that. No, yeah. you, ha- you, know, you, think you have to – you can't take the law into your own hands. And basically uh, that's what – Even in Florida. Yeah. Even in Florida. And that's what offensive cyber operations uh, could end up being, particularly when in the hands of, uh, of uh, private individuals. Um, so what this article does is uh, they outline some of the the elements that they consider to be responsible offensive behavior, uh, things like testing your tools before using them, avoiding indiscriminate targeting, prohibiting targets throughout the operational life cycle, uh, constraining automation because things can spin out of control, to pre- preventing criminal and third-party access to back doors uh, and responsible operation design, engineering, and oversight I think these are pretty basic, straightforward things here. Uh, I'm curious on your take on this, Ben. I mean, the I, I suppose, first of all, the the need for an article like this, and then what do you think of the things that they've outlined here? I think it's a really interesting article, and I understand the need. Um, I mean, the analog, as you say, is conventional warfare, mm-hmm. uh, and we do have rules of engagement that have been negotiated in international treaties. I mean, that's what the Geneva Convention is. I think the idea here being presented in that paper is that we have to adopt some of those principles than it is to just have standard rules of engagement for actual war and and combat for a number of reasons. One is that it seems like the most hostile nation states uh, are loath to admit that they're behind some of the uh, most prominent cyber attacks Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and they're willing to, you know— 
have non-state actors uh, be forward-facing and take the blame for uh, for the attacks. Right. Uh, and they're trying to disclaim responsibility. And I don't know why they would ever have incentive not to do that, you know, unless we escalate, escalate our own cyber espionage and bring them to the table uh, with our own offensive actions. And that would sort of violate uh, what we're trying to get across in this entire effort anyway and trying to minimize the the damage of cyber incidents and not, you know— escalate uh, into an all-out cyber war. Hmm. So, you know, that that that's one problem. Um, and then, you know, so, mu- so many cyber crimes are not really traceable to a single nation state. Mm. You know, luckily for some of the major uh, cyber attacks that we've had over the past several months, SolarWinds and the Microsoft Exchange incident, uh, we have been able to trace them at least to the, to the country of origin. That's not always going to be the case. Right. Um, and sometimes we're going to get things wrong. I just don't think it's as well situated for the type of diplomatic uh, agreement that conventional warfare is. Um, so I, I guess my position is that I admire the the effort. I think it's a worthy goal, but I'm just very skeptical that we're going to get to the uh, point where we have these sort of standardized rules of engagement for cyber espionage yeah. uh, and offensive cyber operations. And I guess I'll be I'll be uh, happy when I see it. Yeah, you know, just earlier this week, I was speaking with uh, an expert on uh, Russian relations, uh, you know, in the cyber realm, and and they made the point that uh, one of the challenges here is that Russia still denies that they even have any offensive cyber capabilities. Yeah, what us? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So, how do you how do you proceed from there if you're if your adversary's position is we don't even have those capabilities, then how do you negotiate the limitations on them uh, if that's your that's your point of departure for your conversation? Yeah, so. I mean, I also think it, it could represent kind of an outdated view on diplomacy in general. Hmm. I mean, we used to have a series of superpowers in the world. It was easy to get everybody to the table, even if they were our adversaries, you know— there, there were reasons where we could have diplomatic agreements, for example, during the Cold War with the Soviet Union because right. they were well organized. You know, they were you're less able with the technology available at the time to hide your true intentions, to funnel your operations through somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had mutually assured destruction. So you had some sort of incentive to try to negotiate. Right. Even going outside the cyber realm, we're talking about the last 20 years, like the war on terrorism has been about non-nation states uh, who, you know, aren't the type of groups or organizations that are going to engage in international diplomacy. Mm-hmm. And we've had to react um, to those threats, not through diplomacy, but for better or worse, through, you know, our own offensive operations. Right. Um, so even in the non-cyber world, I'm wondering if this type of approach might just not realistically uh, address the threats that exist right now. Even though I I wish it did, I'm just not sure that it does. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an interesting uh, article, definitely worth a read. Again, it's over on the Lawfare blog. Uh, It's titled Responsible Cyber Offense, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. If you have a question for us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at caveat at thecyberwire.com. now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. 
Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Jamil Jaffer. He is from IronNet Cybersecurity. And we were discussing some of the key takeaways from President Biden's executive order on cybersecurity. Here's my conversation with Jamil Jaffer. Well, look, I think uh, I think uh, Biden uh, clearly was going to put together a, a superstar uh, cyber team. I um, mean, he's done that. If you look at across the board, uh, whether you start with General Paul Nakasone at, at Cyber Command and NSA, uh, Rob Joyce is the head of the cybersecurity directorate at NSA. You've got Ann Newbarger in the White House. You've got Jen Easterly at CISA. You know, Chris Inglis at National Cyber Director. I mean, you could not put together a better team of cyber experts, not to mention Jake Sullivan uh, at the top of the National Security Council. I mean, this is really, uh, in a lot of ways, the elite cyber team uh, when it comes to uh, defending the nation um, in, in this arena. And from what we've seen so far from the administration, the amount of attention that they're focusing on cybersecurity, is, uh, does it fit the bill here? Or are you in alignment with how they've handled it so far? Well, yeah, look, I mean, they've obviously taken a lot of interest in the issue. You've heard the president talk about it a number of times, whether at press conferences um, or or the like. You've seen two executive orders. Um, you've seen, uh, uh, like I said, these great appointments. Um, I think one of the challenges that they're facing, to be candid with you, is, you know, we've seen a, a onslaught of uh, cyber hacks and cyber attacks uh, against American infrastructure. I, I like to differentiate between hacks, which are sort of the things I think about when you know you 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 go after a system and you try to take out data, um, remove it, and utilize it. Surveillance type stuff, uh, IP theft, right? Versus what I'd call cyber attack, where you're actually trying to engage in destroying data, manipulating data, modifying data, uh, uh, taking systems offline. You know, oftentimes we talk about cyber attacks as being both those things, but that's probably an understatement. And they've been they've faced an onslaught of both, right? We saw the solar storm uh, uh, attacks uh, against American infrastructure towards the end of last year as they began to take office. We saw uh, we saw the Microsoft Exchange hacks by the Chinese. The solar storm was by solar storm was the Russians. Uh, we've seen now a series of ransomware attacks, include attacks where, where systems were, were were compromised and and, and made non functional for a period of time against critical infrastructure, Colonial Pipeline, key, uh, you know, uh, providers, JBS, the meat, the meat supplier, uh, you know, supply chain attacks through Kaseya, the uh, the cybersecurity provider. So we've seen a lot going on, and the Biden administration has really gone out of their way to be forward-leaning about it. I mean, the president raised it with Vladimir Putin um, in, in at their at their summit recently. But let's also be candid. Uh, we haven't seen a big neck down in attacks. The attacks uh, and the hacks have continued, uh, if not sped up and gotten more problematic. And so I think the administration is working on it, but but have they have they hit success yet? I think they would tell you uh, they're still struggling to find that find that that key thing that will deter these uh, these these hacks and these attacks um, and and be an effective response. And what do you suppose they have at their disposal? What what are the the dials they can turn in terms of uh, international diplomacy to to make a difference there? That's no, a great. It's a great question. I think there are three primary things they can do. 
Uh, one is on the defensive side, right? So, you know, we've talked for a long time, and you heard the Cyberspace Solarium Commission last year in March during the middle of COVID come out with a report saying, you know, we defend in this country and, frankly, with our allies in too much of an individualized way. Each individual company, each individual government agency is going up against the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans. It's not effective. We've got to defend collectively. We've got to bring government agencies together. We've got to bring private industry, companies together, industries together, industry with the government, and frankly, our government with allied governments to really defend the nation and defend our allies in cyberspace. We don't do that. And the Cyberspace Solar Commission talked about that piece of the defensive side, which really is critical. So that's one thing they could do on the defensive side is really create a collective and, and collaborative defense capability. On the more offensive side, obviously, we could take the fight more to the enemy, to our adversaries. We've, we've heard, uh, allegedly, that the U.S. government uh, has punched back, potentially, the cyber realm. Um, but we haven't seen it done publicly, right? And we haven't seen uh, a real offensive capability uh, leverage against our enemies um, and cost extracted from them. And so I think you've got to do that uh, you know, if you want to deter people. And you've got to do it in a public way if you're going to deter others. Um, and then finally, you know, I think the third way that the administration can have an effect is international norms, right? Working with our allies and those who agree with us uh, to create standards of behavior in cyberspace that we can then uh, press upon our adversaries. Now, of course, the challenge there, and you've seen some great work on that space. You saw the recent statements just this past week from the EU, from NATO, from the United States. Uh, the, but the challenge there is, you know, talk is cheap, right? Words are good and norms are good when you put them on paper, but they only work if you enforce them. And you, and, you, and you use that offensive capability to extract costs when norms aren't met. And so, you know, we've got to do more on that front. I think there's more work to be done on the offensive side and on the defensive side to really create this collective and collaborative defense capability. So if, if we brought those three things together, I think uh, the administration, which is thinking about all of these things and actively discussing them, you know, could have some real success. You know, as you and I are recording this, uh, just recently the White House put out a memorandum on uh, protecting industrial control systems. And one of the things that that memorandum pointed out was that your know, next steps could include a Congress taking it to the next level of, of actually, you know, putting together legislation. It strikes me that cybersecurity remains one of the, the few things where it seems as though there is true good faith bipartisan support. First of all, do you think that's so? And, and is, is that going to make an easier path for this White House to move things forward with cyber? I think so. I mean, I think I, I think that both parties recognize the challenges we face in this in this arena. You know, we saw President Bush back uh, a long time ago uh, creating a national cybersecurity uh, initiative, um, and and so that was the, the beginning of this. The Obama administration did a lot in this space. The Trump administration definitely got more aggressive in the cyber domain, and the Biden administration has has continued that effort. I mean, Congress at times has taken action. You saw in 2015 the creation of the Cyber Information Sharing Act. Uh, that was a good move. That was legislation that I worked on back in 2011 when I was when I worked for the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, Chairman Mike Rogers. Um, and so there's been a lot done in this space. Uh, could there be more? Absolutely. But could there also be bad choices made by Congress and the executive branch in this space? There could be. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the need to regulate in the cyber domain. There's been a lot of talk about the need to uh, impose new requirements. And, you know, I tend to be of the view that one of the challenges we have in the cyber domain is you know, there's there's a real lack of information flowing between the government and industry. There's a real lack of collaboration. I think we need to fix that problem first before we try to go after regulation. I mean, look, the government is not particularly good at understanding technology itself internally, much less externally. The idea that, you know, one of our regulatory agencies or one of the regulatory bodies of the government could set smart regulations for cybersecurity and then update them as quickly as needed to keep up with technology – 
seems to me pretty unlikely. And, and so I think before we reach that regulatory stick, we should really reach for you know, smart carrots, smart incentives, and really create what the Cybersecurity Solarium Commission called for, this collaborative and collective uh, cyber defense, and see if that works, see if that solves the challenges we see in cybersecurity. People talk about a market failure in cybersecurity. It's not a market failure if the market lacks information, right? That's something you can fix through more, more, more information, more collaboration. Then, and, and if then there's still a problem in cybersecurity, then we could talk about market failures and the need for regulation, in my view. And then even then, you got to be sure, can Congress do it right and update it effectively? And, you know, I mean, that's, that's still to be seen. You know, my sense is that we've we've uh, certainly seen more outreach from a, a lot of the organizations. Uh, you know, NSA is being a lot more uh, public and and collaborative than I think they've been in the past. Uh, even things like seeing folks like Jen Easterly communicating out on social media, like Twitter. You know, I, I think all of these things are helpful. Um, how do we be sure that they aren't just window dressing? Look, that's a great question. I mean, look, I, I know Jenny Sully personally. I've known her for years since she ran the Counterterrorism um, um, Mission Management Center at NSA. She is a doer. She is not a talker. Uh, it's been great that she's been out there publicly on Twitter talking about uh, the work that she's doing, the work, the important work that CISA does. That's an important part of that dialogue with the American public. At the same time, again, you know, it's actions critical. And so, you know, we've seen executive orders. We've seen uh, we've seen some talk within the government about what they're going to do. We've seen some great appointments. But at the end of the day, until our adversaries realize that we are getting fed up and tired of this and we're going to do something about it, and they're going to feel some pain the way they're making us feel pain, whether that's China through IP theft or, or Russia through ransomware or you know, Russian proxy actors through ransomware, frankly, you know, until they feel pain, they're going to keep doing it. They're going to continue testing our boundaries. It's like having a kid. you know, If you set <laughs> boundaries for your kid, if you don't enforce them – they learn they can get away with it and they test your boundaries. And, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not, trying, to, I'm not trying to be dismissive of any of our adversaries. They're very serious, very uh, professional, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans. But discipline matters and punching back and being tough matters. And, and this administration, you know, has the kind of people who understand how to do that. Paul Nakasone, Jen Easterly, Rob Joyce, uh, Chris Ingalls, these people know how to get tough with the adversary. We got to free them up to do it. All right, Ben, what do you think? Really interesting interview. Um, I, uh, you know, think the Biden administration has gotten off to uh, a good start on uh, cyber policy. I think their appointments uh, have been well recognized across the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the executive order was relatively well received. And, you know, I'm just kind of curious to see as new threats continue to emerge, how the administration uh, and their experienced personnel are going to react. Um, But I thought it was an interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I I think uh, particularly interesting, I think Jamil rightly points out that, uh, you know, this administration has been putting really well-qualified people in place. And uh, because of that, they've really They've they've gone through without much controversy. There the, there's been bipartisan support for the folks that they've been putting in these uh, particular positions. So I, that's a good sign. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, nominating somebody, for example, like Chris Inglis, uh, who has worked in administrations of both parties, um, somebody who understands the full range of threats uh, in the, in the cyber realm, uh, and you know, somebody who's worked in the National Security Agency. I just think. 
you know, they, they have made some good personnel decisions. I'm encouraged by it, and uh, I hope it pays off for us. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Jamil Jaffer from IronNet Cybersecurity for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>